Um, tonight we get a chance to continue on in uh, the series that we started last week called The End. And we're really looking at the end times. And when we said this last week, we said, I, I want to give you a little bit of context as we um, delve into some new stuff this week. We said this last week, when we talk about the end times, there's nothing more important than to get like the big picture. Many times we can get focused on all the details, which we're going to look at some details tonight. Okay, So we don't, we don't hate details. But we can't miss the big picture. And last week we said the big picture when we talk about the end times is Jesus what? Wins. Right. Jesus wins. Jesus comes back and Jesus wins. And he doesn't just win. Like we looked at Revelation 19 and Revelation 20. He doesn't just win. He crushes evil. Right. I mean it's like no context. We look at Revelation 19 and 20. You get a little bit of a glimpse into the power and majesty and authority of Jesus. And we said when Jesus comes back... He comes back differently, right? Like he looks different. Jesus comes back as a warrior king, right? He comes back as a warrior, destroying evil. And it sounds kind of terrifying. Like as you read it, we read it last week, he sounds kind of terrifying, right? A sword out of his mouth, blood dipped in robe. His robe dipped in blood, right? He sounds terrifying unless you're on his side. And so we said last week, I mean, there's some things that we got to pull from this like immediately for our lives. The first thing is, man, we need to know him now. Like, this is one of the, the core beliefs for us as followers of Jesus. He said he's coming back. We expect him to come back, right? And he comes back differently than when he came the first time. And so we really need to know him. And if you know him, we said we need to get to know him better. Like, we need to spend time with him. We need to love him. And then we said, like we look at evil. Sometimes we can look at the end times and we can look at like the forces of evil. And it can, it can be scary to us, right? And we said, man, we don't need to fear it. We don't need to fear uh, the end times and we don't need to fear evil. We see how Jesus conquers. The warrior king comes back and utterly destroys evil, right? Evil is not something that we have to fear. But we said evil is something that we have to resist. Evil is something that we have to resist. The forces of evil and sin only have as much power in our lives as we allow them to have. As followers of Jesus, evil and sin only have as much power in our lives as you and I allow them to have. And we said the way that we don't allow evil and sin to have power in our lives is to be connected to Jesus, right? When I'm connected to him, when I spend time with him, when I'm reading about him, when I'm serving him, when I'm telling others about him, I, I, evil is not so attractive to me anymore. Sin's not so attractive to me anymore, right? And then we ended our time and we said, man, if, if like we believe all this is true, and I'm going to probably emphasize this every week because I think it's so, so, so important. If we believe all of this stuff is true, we should tell people, shouldn't we? Like there are people all over the place. We had churches everywhere, right? I don't even know how many. I did research one time. I forget how many churches are in Barberton. 46, something like that. There's churches all over the place, right? Guys, there are people all over the place that have no idea who Jesus really is. They're searching for hope, and many times in the wrong places. They're searching for truth. That's exactly what Jesus offers us. He offers us hope. He offers us truth. He offers us love. He offers us forgiveness. He offers us salvation. And so he said, man, if we believe this stuff, we got to be telling people about it. we got to help Jesus make sense to people who are confused about who he is, right? So that's kind of where we went last week. Last week, we were talking about the general, the big picture, right? Don't forget, Jesus comes back and Jesus wins. 
tonight we're going to start talking about specifics. And when I when I think about like explaining the end times, this is this is how I like to explain it. Ready? I like to explain from the cross to eternity in eight easy steps. You can do it. Eight easy. It's not like an infomercial, right? The cross to eternity in eight easy steps. Eight simple steps. And tonight we're actually going to dig in. We're only going to get halfway. Okay? We're only going to get halfway to eternity tonight. We're going to look at the first four steps. And uh, next week we're going to look at the next four. And then the final week, by the way, I'm just, I'm, I want to look at eternity. I want to kind of dig in a little bit deeper to eternity. And we're going to look at eternal bliss, right? Or eternal separation from God. So that's the, that's the uh, fourth week of this series. But tonight we're going to go about halfway through these eight steps. And I want to say this. We're going to go kind of quickly. I mean, you know, 35, 40 minutes goes quickly. Sometimes 42 minutes. It goes quickly, right? Uh, so we're not going to get a chance to dig in too terribly deep with this. But my goal isn't to be exhaustive and all this. My goal is to whet your appetite with this. Because let's be honest, if this is the only time that we have with God throughout the week, worshiping him, singing to him, learning about him, praying to him, then we're going to be in trouble. Our faith is going to be about this deep. And so you guys all are going to walk out of here, me included. We're all going to walk out of here, and we're going to have chances over and over and over again this week to spend time with him and to dig in with him. And so my goal is to whet your appetite a little bit. I recommended a book last week. There's lots of different good books on uh, end time stuff. I recommended one uh, called the, the Rose Publishing is the publisher, The Rose uh, Guide to End Times. Okay, it's by Timothy Paul, Timothy Paul Jones, Timothy Paul Jones, uh, and it's really good. We got we, we had a few copies and people took them last week, so we don't have any more copies. But it's a good book that kind of digs into it. But there's other ones out there too. And so my hope tonight is just to kind of whet your appetite so that you dig in a little bit deeper to some of this stuff later. And I, and I hope that like as we dig into these, as we get specific tonight and dig into these eight steps, that like it helps you, right? Because it'll deepen our faith and we'll know a little bit more of what to expect. Hopefully we won't, it won't be a scary thing for any of us. But it also prepares you when and God brings about conversations with other people. And they're like, man, what's up with this world? This world is terrible. It feels like it's the end. You know, there's got to be the end times. And you, can, and you can have an intelligible conversation with them about what the Bible actually says. Not just what we think, not just what we feel, but what the Bible says the end times will be like. So I hope to prepare you as well to be able to give this stuff to some other people. And then when we're done, we're going to take a little time and we're going to just ask the so what question. You know, as we get specific with this, with what the Bible says, what difference does it make in our lives today? Right? We're going to ask that so what question. I'll share with you three things that just God's been rubbing on my heart this week as, uh, as I think about the end times in my own life. Make sense? So you guys ready to work tonight? Yeah. yeah. You do better than that. You guys ready to work tonight? Yeah. Okay. Contain your enthusiasm. You're in church for goodness sake. All right. Here we go. Um, so let me remind you, as we start to get specific, let me remind you of something that we said last week. When we start talking about the specifics of the end times, these are things that we hold with an open hand, right? These are things that we hold with an open hand. Because the truth is, there's a lot of different passages in the Bible that talk about the end. And it's really tough to tell what comes first, what comes second, what's to be taken literally, what's to be taken figuratively. And so as we talk about these end times, we hold it with an open hand. We go, this is what I believe. Like, the Bible talks about it. And so we put together a, a belief system, like, what this looks like. This is what I believe, but I hold it with an open hand, knowing I could be a little wrong on some of the specifics. I could be wrong on the details. And we said, there's some things that we hold tightly, right? Jesus comes back, and Jesus wins. Big picture stuff. 
But when we start talking about the very specifics and what that sequence looks like, we hold those things with an open hand. Does that make sense? Very important for us, okay? I like how a guy, let me jump two slides here. I like how a guy um, named Martin Lloyd-Jones says it, it's just well said. He says, the great doctrine of the second advent, which is the second coming of Jesus, a.k.a. the end times, the great doctrine of the second advent has, fall, uh, has, in a sense, fallen into disrepute because of this tendency on the part of some to be more interested in the how and the when of the second coming rather than the fact of the second coming. Right? I mean, that's kind of what we've been saying. We can get really focused on the specifics, the how and the when and all of that stuff, and we can miss the big picture. He's coming back, right? Like Jesus is coming back and Jesus wins. So I like how he says it. I was talking to a friend this week about, um, it's just an interesting conversation. We're just talking about this series and the end time stuff. And we started talking about when Jesus came the first time. And I, how, I think there's some things that we can learn from how the Jews responded to that, right? Like they had in their mind an idea of what this coming Messiah for them was going to be like. And so they create, even though the, in, in the Old Testament, it wasn't terribly specific what the Messiah was going to be like, right? And how he was going to do what he did. They created this belief system and they got very specific. They created this box that the Messiah was going to come fill. He's going to be a political leader. He's going to be a military leader. He's going to free them from you know, their bondage to the Romans. And what happened? Many of them missed it, right? Many of them missed him. Many of them missed Jesus because he didn't fit into the box that they had created, Right? So we've got to be careful not to do the same thing with the end times. I don't think we're going to miss Jesus' return, but I think we need to major on the things that are clear. Jesus is coming back. Jesus wins. And we need to hold the specifics with an open hand. Okay? You guys tracking with me? Okay, so as we move along into these next two weeks, some of the steps we're going to get into a little bit uh, deeper, and some of the steps we're going to kind of give you a, a little bit of a summary and then kind of blow past, okay? Um, the way that we believe at Grace Church, so the belief system, the perspective that we have on the end times, is some two big words, ready? Two big words. It's called pre-tribulational premillennialism. Pre-tribulational, you can impress your friends with these words, right? Pre-tribulational premillennialism. Sometimes it's called dispensational premillennialism. So big words, but the concepts that they define are actually very simple to understand. So the two words mean two different things. So the pre and pre-tribulational means that we believe that Jesus is going to rapture his church. He's going to snatch up his church. He's going to take all of us that love him before the tribulation. Pre-tribulational, right? That's, that's the first word. The second, pre-millennialism, is that we believe that Jesus is going to come back, is physically going to come back to earth before the millennial reign of, G of him, before his millennial reign, before his thousand year reign, okay, which we're going to get specific, we're gonna, I'm going to explain all these things here in a second, but I want to just kind of explain what these two words mean. So we believe that the church is going to be snatched up before the tribulation, tribulation is terrible, I'll get specific in a second, but it's terrible, so we're going to be rescued from that, and Jesus is going to physically return to earth and reign for a thousand years, that's the premillennialism. So that's what those two words mean. I think it'll become clearer as we progress through these eight steps. Now, this view, this is important to understand too. All of the different views of the end times, 
they, they come to be because you have all these different passages in the Bible that talk about the end times, some in the Old Testament, some in the New Testament. They're hard to understand many times if we're to take them very figuratively or very literally, right? And so we all land somewhere on this spectrum. So we'll look at 1 Thessalonians 4 and we're like, what, what does that mean? The, the, the sky's going to split, Jesus, the trumpet's going to sound. Like, do we take that literally or do we take that figuratively? And so wherever you fall on this spectrum and looking at these end times passages lead to a different perspective on the end times. So you may have, there's amillennialists, there's postmillennialists, there's classic premillennialists, there's pre-tribulational premillennialists, right? There's all kinds of different ones. Where we land, this is the important part, where we land on the spectrum is a little bit more on the literal side of these passages, okay? So there's a whole, there's a whole bunch of them. There's a whole slew of them. So we don't take everything word for word literally, but we lean more on the literal side. That's what lands us at this pre-tribulational premillennialism. Okay? All right. So let's dig into it. Let's look at the, the eight steps. So we begin at the cross. We begin when Jesus came the first time. So step one is the first coming. What's step one? The first. This is the interactive portion of our service tonight. What's step one? The first coming. Right. Did you know that when Jesus came the first time, that's what, that's what ushered in the end times. When Jesus came the first time, it changed everything. We said this last week. When he came the first time, he came as a servant. He came as our suffering servant. He came to seek and save lost people that were looking to be found. He came to give peace to people seeking peace. He came to give hope to people looking for hope. He came to give salvation to people looking for truth and for forgiveness. But he didn't force himself, right? When Jesus came the first time, his first coming, he didn't force himself. He came offering us a choice. Do we come to him for truth, for forgiveness, for salvation, or do we resist him? And do we reject him? And do we join in with those who would crucify him, even crucify him, right, at the cross? So he came giving us a choice. But in spite of the cross, it had no power. Death had no power over Jesus, right? He already said, Jesus wins. It couldn't contain him. And so he rose again, and he showed himself to many people. And many believed in him, and they believed in his message, and they received this gift of salvation that he promised to them by trusting in him, right? That's, we receive the gift that he talks about, the gift of, of forgiveness, of peace, of grace, of salvation, by trusting in him and having faith in him. Here, here's, how I rem- here's how I think about it. This, this just makes sense to me. It's like our sin, when, when, when we compare ourselves to God, it's like our sin puts us in a place where we're like hanging off a cliff for dear life, right? And we could fall at any time and we're struggling. We can't get up off of that cliff. And what Jesus came to do, when he came the first time, it's very simple. He comes, he goes like this. He reaches down. He says, grab hold. Trust me, right? And we, we have responsibility. If you're hanging off a cliff, you got a responsibility. You got to, what, what do you have to do? If you want to grab his hand, what do you have to do? You got to let go, right? That's, that's what Jesus came for the first time. He came to offer us the gift of rescue, of peace, of forgiveness. But the way that we receive it we got to let go, and we got to grab hold of him, right? We abandon all of our methods of trying to climb up, and we hold on to him. And then, this is, this is an amazing thought to me. He promised, when he came the first time, he promised that when he left, 
he was going to prepare a place for us. And he said, I'm going to come back one day and I'm going to take you to be where I am, right? He's going to take all of us that love him to be with him forever. This is good news. This is the gospel. This is the truth that has changed the life of millions and millions and millions of people over the last 2,000 years. And it's changed the life of many of us here in this room, right? It's changed my life. It's the reason that we're here tonight. God the Son came to earth. He became flesh and blood. He died in our place. He took the penalty for every single bit of our wrongdoing, that everything that we've ever done, everything that we'll ever do, all because he loves us. That's, that's the first coming. That's the whole reason he came. That's step one. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, it's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not from yourselves. You can't climb up yourself. It's a gift from God, not by works so that no one can boast. Step one, the first coming. Ready? Say it with me. What's step one? The first coming. Good. Step two is the church age. What's step two? The church age. Good. You guys are getting the hang of this. The church age is where we're at right now. This is the time that you and I get to struggle through worshiping God, following Jesus in a fallen world. And it's not easy, right? I mean, let's just be honest. Most days, it's not easy. There's all kinds of stuff all around us every single day to distract us and to pull us away from following God. Plus, we're all sinners, every single one of us, which I hate, but it's true. We hurt, we disappoint each other, we let each other down, right? We hurt God, it's like what we do, we're sinners. But now, we're sinners with hope. We're not, a, because of step one, we're not sinners without hope. We're sinners with hope. We're not a hopeless cause. Jesus isn't physically present on earth anymore, but he's given us his very spirit. This is a beautiful promise in the Bible. When we choose to follow Jesus, he gives us his spirit to live inside of us. The very spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, that's what the Bible says, the very spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives inside of you and me, changing us from the inside out, leading us, making us holier, convicting us. And so, in a sense, the kingdom of God has already come, right? It's already arrived because Jesus has come, because of step one, his first coming. Because Jesus came, the kingdom of God has already arrived in a sense. And because we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, right? But the kingdom of God also, in another sense, has yet to come. Because this world has not been made new yet. We still live in a fallen world. We still live in a world that is deeply affected by sin, that's deeply affected by rebellion. And see, here's the thing. We get a chance as Jesus' followers to grow his kingdom on earth right now. It's like we've been given the cure to the sick world, right? Like you and I, we, but we, we've been given it. We've been given this. We can do this. We can help people do this and grab hold. We've been given the cure. The hard work's already been done. The cure's been developed. It's been manufactured. It's been distributed to millions of reps, right? All over the world. Millions of us know the way to forgiveness and life change and we have the keys to eternal life with Jesus like we we have the cure to our sin problem and we get a chance to give the cure to the world like we get a chance to take the incredible hope 
the, the, pro, the sin problem that every single person in the history of this earth has struggled with, has lived with, we have the cure for. Here's a question. What are we doing with it? I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm talking to myself too. Like, what are we doing with it? Are, are we hoarding the cure? You know, like keep, it's just, it's for me. I think my faith is private, it's personal, it's just for me. I live, I, I don't, I don't want to push it on anyone else. Like, is that, are we hoarding the cure? Like, are we worried that sick people won't want the cure? I, I don't, I don't want to offend her. I don't want to make him feel uncomfortable, you know? Or are we blessing the world with this cure that we've been given? the hope that we have, the cure to the sin problem that we all deal with. Are we participating in growing the kingdom of God? See, that's what the church age is all about. The church age is about making the name of Jesus famous. Not, not infamous. You know what infamous? Like famous for bad reasons. Christians can be really good at that. Christians have been really good at that for a long, long time. That's not our job. Our job is to make the name of Jesus famous. Think about this. What kind of mark are you leaving on this world? You know, like is your, is your life making the name of Jesus famous? That's what our lives are about right here and right now in the church age. That's the church age. Second Corinthians five says it so well. This is Paul writing. He says, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This is our job description, guys. That God was reconciling the world to himself and Christ, not counting people's sins against them. He's committed to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, you and I, we are Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. Like, that's the job description for you and me in the church age. This is where we're at right now. We're not too far into the eight steps, right? Jesus came the first time. He went back up to heaven. Now we're in the church age. We have one job, to be Christ's ambassadors. The minute, we have a ministry of reconciliation. We have the cure to give to anybody who wants it. Anybody who's interested. Everybody needs it. That's step two, the church age. Ready? Say it with me. The church age. Good. Okay. Step three. Next step. It's called the rapture. What's step three? The rapture. Very good. The rapture is a word that we don't use very often today. It's a Latin word. Uh, it comes from the word raptus, and it means to catch up or to, or to not catch up like you'd put on... To snatch up. Maybe that's a better way to say it, right? In a nutshell, this is when Jesus comes to take his church. This is when Jesus comes to take all of those that are alive that love him, right? And those that have died in Christ. And we believe that this immediately follows the church age. We're in the church age now. This is the very next thing coming. The rapture. 1 Thessalonians 4 describes the rapture best. Paul's writing here, and he writes to the Thessalonians. So he's writing like 20 years after Jesus ascended up into heaven. And so when Jesus came the first time, people knew, like, this is, he said he's coming back. We're in the end times, right? They knew that this is the end. And so they're waiting and waiting and waiting. 20 years go by, people start dying, right? That are part of the church. And so these Thessalonians are like, Paul, what happens to people that love Jesus, but they die before he comes back, right? And so this is what Paul says. 
1 Thessalonians 4.16. He says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we'll be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. What's Paul describing here? Well, he's describing the rapture. Jesus himself will return to earth, or at least partway to earth. It says that the dead in Christ will rise first, right? So those believers in Jesus that have already died, then those that are alive will rise to meet the Lord in the clouds. That's why we say, you know, is he, is he come all the way to earth, or is it like the rapture is him coming partway to earth and like pulling people up to be with him? Not totally sure, but we believe this will be a secret coming of Jesus. Jesus snatches up all the people that have ever loved them, and he takes them with him back up to heaven for a little while. That's the rapture. So, so you may be asking, like, well, what goes up to meet the Lord in the air? I thought when you died, you immediately went to go be with the Lord. Like, what's, what's rising up? Well, it's true. 2 Corinthians 5 says, you know, apart from the body, present with the Lord. And so how we understand it is their spirits, people who die, if you and I die tonight or tomorrow and you love Jesus, your spirit immediately goes to be with the Lord. But what happens to our body? And bury it. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, like, our body is so important when it contains our spirit, when it houses our spirit. But man, once, our, once we die and our spirit is no longer present in the body, you burn it, you bury it, right? It's almost worthless. So now their physical bodies, at the rapture, their physical bodies are being resurrected and they're turned into a glorified body, which begs a question, right? Like, what's, what's a glorified body? Well, no one knows for sure. Like, no, no one knows exactly what our glorified bodies will be like. It seems like they'll be similar, but better. 1 Corinthians 15, like, we don't have a ton of time to dig into the specifics. If you're interested in digging in a little bit more and seeing exactly what the Bible says about it, 1 Corinthians 15 talks talks about that if you want to do some research on your own. But most people think that our glorified bodies will be like Jesus' body when he came, when he rose again from the dead, right? Like, it's interesting. Like, sometimes people recognized him. Sometimes they didn't. He, he, he could have his disciples put their fingers through the holes in his body, right? And yet sometimes, and he ate food with them, right? And then there's other times when it seemed like you maybe walked through a wall or something. They're meeting in a closed room, and all of a sudden, poof, there's Jesus. So one of our glorified bodies, like, I don't know. It seems like it'll be like our regular bodies, physical bodies, and yet in some ways, better. Like, I think about this a lot, you know? Like, I think my glorified body, I'm going to be like 6'4", 3% body fat. I'm going to have Tyler Jensen's head of hair. You know what I'm saying? Like, you'll recognize me, but just barely, right? And if I'm wrong, we'll be in heaven, and I won't be too upset about it, right? But here's the point. Jesus himself is coming back to rapture or to snatch up his church to be with him. Those that love him, to take them to be with him. Which, this really hit me this week. You know, if you remember back to last week, if you were last week, and we talked about when Satan was captured and bound and thrown into the bottomless pits, Revelation 20, when Satan's captured, bound, thrown into the bottomless pit for a thousand years. Do you remember who he said did that? It wasn't Jesus, you remember? It was an angel, right? It was an angel. So it was almost like to, to bind up Satan was like beneath him or something. But Jesus himself, with the rapture, 
Jesus himself comes down out of heaven to snatch us up. Like you and I are worth his time. Like he loves you and me so much that he makes the he makes the trip himself. I suppose he could have sensed somebody. Like go down, go down and get them. You know, Gabriel, I don't know. Right? He could have sensed somebody, I think. But you're worth his time. So am I. Because he loves us. Like we're that important to him. I think we gotta remember that. You know, we can forget that so many times in our lives. Because we make mistakes, we do stupid things. We turn away from God. He doesn't turn away from us. He loves us. You're worth it to him. But here's something else about the rapture that's really important for us to say. It can happen at any time. So we're in the church age, right? The very next thing is the rapture, and it could happen at any time. It's called the imminent return of Christ. It could happen at any time. Jesus himself talks about this in Matthew 24. So, Matt, so the book of Matthew is kind of composed of five different uh, sermons, talks, discourses, they call them. And the very last one is Matthew 24 and 25. It's called the Olivet Discourse. So Jesus gives this teaching on the Mount of Olives, right? Not a mountain of olives. That would be an interesting teaching. But the Mount of Olives is a place. And he gives this teaching in Matthew 24 and 25. And this is, this is what he says. Ready? About the, his imminent return. He says, But the day and the hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in, mar- giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That's how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two, two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other one left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken, the other one left. Then Jesus says this. He says, therefore keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. He says, but understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and wouldn't have let his house be broken into. He says, so you must also be ready because the son of man can come in an hour when you do not expect him. It's the imminent return of Christ. He can come at any time. We're in the church age. We got one job in the church age. Be his ambassador. Help people come to know him. Be ministers of reconciliation. We never know when he's coming next. It could be any time. The imminent return of Christ. Step three is the rapture. Say it with me. The rapture. Good. Step four. Last one we're going to do today. Step four is the tribulation. What's step four? Tribulation. So we're going to keep it simple with the tribulation. I like how a theologian that writes a lot on end times, a guy named Paul Benware, I like how he explains it. He he explains it very simply. What's the tribulation? He says this, the scriptures teach that the tribulation is an absolutely unique period of time in all of human history and that the world experiences the wrath of God as never before. Tribulation is a time when the world will experience God's wrath in a way that it's never experienced it before. Jesus talks about this. It's it's kind of scary what he says. He says, For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. Sounds terrible, right? 
Daniel 7, Daniel 9, Daniel 12, Revelation 11, they all refer to this tribulation period. And they talk about it being seven years, seven years long. And so many, many think it's seven terrible years, right? Some think that it's going to be the first three and a half years are pretty good or abundantly good. And then the next three and a half years are terrible, terrible, right? But we know it's seven years and we know that the effect of the tribulation is awful. God's wrath displayed in ways that we can't even imagine. Sometimes we look at the world right now and we go, man, it's it's tough. It's it's bad, you know? You look at the things going on with like what ISIS is doing. You look at you look at some of the, the natural disasters going on in the world where so many people are dying. It's nothing compared to the tribulation that's to come. Not as the Bible describes it. Worldwide destruction. More people will die than have ever perished before, except for the flood when everybody on the planet died, except a few. It will be awful natural disasters and supernatural disasters. It seems that the forces of evil will have power and dominion on this world in a way that they never have before. It's going to be terrible. And, and as you read what Jesus said there, if you look at the, the last sentence, he said, In those, if those days had been cut short, no one would survive, but for the sake of the elect, they, the, those days will be short. And you may wonder, like, who are the elect in this passage? Because I thought the elect were just raptured, right? They were just snatched up. We're in the church age. The next thing is the rapture. Everybody that loves Jesus is taken, right? Who are the elect in this passage? Well, how we understand that is that, yes, everybody who loves Jesus and has ever loved Jesus is taken up with them. But as we understand it, people can still come to follow Jesus during the tribulation. It'll be terrible. It'll be incredibly difficult. But people will come to know him. And what we, how we understand it is, this is the time when the Jews, when many Jews who missed it before, turn and they go, oh crap, all the Christians are gone. We were wrong. Right? And they go, I... I got, I'm following Jesus. I don't care how hard it is. I'm following Jesus, right? And they'll lead the way in evangelizing the world. And so more people will come to know him during that time. But Satan and his cronies, they're working overtime as well, right? They're working overtime during the tribulation. And they'll do miracles too. And they'll deceive many people. And during that time, they'll gather this army together. We looked at this last week for the battle of, for the battle of Armageddon, right? Which we looked at and we said, it ain't really a battle at all. It's just like Jesus like, poof, and they're done. But this is the time when the forces of evil gather together to potentially battle battle against Jesus. That's what happens during the tribulation. So what's the tribulation? Well, in a nutshell, the tribulation is seven years of terrible times where God's wrath is unleashed on the world. But here's the amazing thing. We believe that you and I that love Jesus right now will be saved from it. That we'll be snatched up. That we'll be rescued from it. Which is something that we can praise God for. So that's step four, the tribulation. What's step four? Tribulation. Good. So that's, that's the first four steps from the cross to eternity. The first coming, the church age, the rapture, and the tribulation. Next week, we're going to dig into the last four steps. 
Um, what, I, what I want to do now, though, before I send you off, I got a few minutes here. Before I send you off, I want to just, like, it's easy to, I don't want us to walk out of here and go, well, that was interesting. I'm glad I know what the Bible says now, and I feel prepared, I guess. Like, what do we do with it? You know, like, what what difference does it make? I've been praying a lot about this this week. Like, like how, do, how does this affect my life right here and right now? And, and so I got three things for you. I'll be quick with them. The first one is this. I, I think I'd be in trouble with the Lord if I didn't say, first and foremost, we got to be prepared. Like, you and I got to be prepared. You know? Like, I, we don't know when the rapture is going to happen. We're in the church. The very next thing is, Jesus can come and snatch everybody up that loves him. He's going to rescue us, right? And we got to be prepared for that. We don't know if it's going to happen tonight. It could happen tomorrow. Or it might not happen in our lifetime. But we have to be prepared. And I think as we talk about the end times, when we think about the rapture, sometimes we can think, like, ah, come on, it's been 2,000 years. Like, maybe my lifespan is 80 years, I don't know. Is it really going to happen during my life? And sometimes we can think like that. But listen, I think when we talk about the end times, we should also be very aware of our own personal end time. Right? And we might not be alive when Jesus comes back. I think it would be amazing if we are. But we might not be alive. But I can promise you this. If you're not, you will have your own personal end time. There'll be a day that Jesus says, John, that's it. You're done. Your life here is over. Right? We've got to be prepared. And, and I don't think being prepared for my end time or the end times is like trying to have every detail of you know, the end times figured out. Like, well, who is the false prophet? And who is the beast? And what is the abomination of desecration? And the mark of the beast? And like all that. I don't think that's what it means by being prepared for the end. I don't think that's what Jesus meant by it. I think what Jesus means by you and I being prepared is us knowing him, and loving him and following him. I cannot think of a better way for you and I to be prepared to meet God, to meet Jesus face to face than to know him really, really well right now. Right? I, I think that's what Jesus means when, he's, when he says, be, like, be aware of what's going on and be ready, be prepared. It's, it's you and I knowing him. It's you and I loving him. Right? So then when we see him face to face, it's not like we, we've met him for the first time. He's our friend. He's our father. He's our God. That, that's the first thing that jumps out to me. The, the second thing is this. I think we need to keep looking forward. Like when I think about my life, living my life right here and right now, I think we need to keep looking forward. My, my daughter, um, she's, she's gotten better at this now, but especially a few couple years ago, she had this terrible habit of, uh, so like we, we play tag a lot in my house, you know, so we're like running, I'm like scaring, I'm jumping around corners, and she'll like run, and I'm like, Rawr! you know, so she'll be running, she had this terrible habit of running with her head like looking back to see if I'm going to touch her, you know, if I'm tap her, so I'm going to grab her, and what happens when you do that? Smack! Like she ran into walls an incredible amount of times, I hope she doesn't have brain damage, I don't think she does. But she would always look back, and so she wouldn't see what was coming in front of her. Like, when we're going, when we're, when we're walking, when we're moving, we can't, like, move looking backwards, right? We get in trouble. We can't even move forward by looking down, like, right at our feet or right what's in front of us. We have to look ahead. We have to look. Our focus, our attention has to be down the road, has to be looking forward. And, guys, I think it's the same thing with our spiritual life. 
See, sometimes we can live our lives, we can, we can live our spiritual life always looking back and going, man, I messed that up. That was disappointing. I'm sure I disappointed God with that. And I can focus on the past and the past and the past. I'm not saying we shouldn't learn from the past, but man, we should not live our lives in the past. We should not live our lives in the past. And so if we live our life and, and, and have the focus of our spiritual life on what's to come, looking forward, Jesus is coming back, it changes the way that I live my life right now. Right? If I'm always looking back, it changes the way I live my life. It's going to be a pretty miserable life. But if I'm looking forward, what does it do? Like you have hard things that come and you're like, ah, that person was mean to me and you know, it kind of bothered me. Like, but Jesus is coming back. It kind of changes everything, doesn't it? Like these gigantic problems that we feel as we live our day-to-day lives aren't that big when our eyes are focused on the fact that Jesus is coming back one day. It changes everything. That's the second thing. The last thing, and maybe the thing that, I don't know, that hit me the hardest this week is we need to pray and live with urgency. We need to pray and live with urgency. I, I shared with you... Uh, couple weeks ago that like prayer for me takes work like it takes discipline it takes intentionality reading studying that stuff comes easy that comes comes more naturally for me but I like really have to be intentional to pray to get that to stop all the other stuff going in my life and spend time with God guys it's amazing how God changes everything for us and in us and about us when we actually slow down our lives and make him our focus, and make him our priority. It's amazing when we do that. We wake up, we go, man, I got 50 things to do today. I have so much to do today. But there's one thing that's more important than anything else, and it's to be with God. It's to connect with God. Like When we do that, when we slow down all the stuff, and we're intentional, we spend time with him, it changes the way that we live our lives. He refines us, right? But man, we live our lives with a different urgency when we actually spend time with him when we pick up our Bibles and we read what he says, when we get down on our knees and we connect with him, my spirit with his spirit, it changes us. It changes the way that we live our lives. I was praying this week just about all this stuff. I thought, you know what? If I knew for sure that Jesus was coming, like I believe with all my heart he's coming back, right? If I knew for sure he was coming back tomorrow, it it would change everything about the way that I live today. I would live today with a completely different urgency, right? I would, do, I would spend every second I had today talking to people about Jesus, begging people to come to know him, knowing he's coming tomorrow. But see, what happens is, take this the right way. I don't say this in a judgmental way against anybody at all, but just, in, just with reality. I think many, most, I don't know, Christians live their lives 95% of the time just like somebody that doesn't think Jesus is God. Just like an atheist. I think many Christians are functional atheists. 95% of the day, 95% of the things that they do are exactly the same as the guy that goes, Jesus is a fairy tale. You know, I'm here by evolution. Guys, it can't be that way. Like, it can't be that way. If that's what following Jesus looks like, eh, I I fit him into my little slot, my little 1% or maybe 5%, and I live my life exactly the same as anybody else that doesn't believe. If that's what our lives look like, there's no way we're going to be able to accomplish the mission that Jesus Jesus left us with. 
help people come to know him. So my challenge to you is like, be prepared, you know? I don't know what that looks like for you. You do, I don't. Be prepared. Keep looking forward. Live your life today in light of what's coming one day. Jesus is coming one day, right? And pray, like make time to pray and just see how God changes the urgency in your life to help other people come to know him.